Hi, and welcome to the Crossroads and Culture podcast, where life, ministry, and culture meet. I'm your host, Sean Bernard, and today, as we get into our second episode in this new podcast, we're going to be talking about the sovereignty of God and toxic theology, um, and how that relates to really what we see going on right now, specifically in the United States, uh, in light of the political landscape. As everyone knows, this has been a crazy um, election process. Um, and now we see it being extended. There are people who are upset on both sides. Uh, one party, the Democrats, are saying that that President Trump needs to concede and just call the election and let's move on. There's nothing that we need to to uh, litigate, um, but just to continue to to move forward and let the transition be as smooth as possible, smoothly as possible. And then there's the the Republican Party and Trump uh, administration specifically that are alleging that there is voter fraud that's taking place, and not just a little bit of voter fraud, but widespread voter fraud in swing states specifically. And quite honestly, it seems as though that there are people who are coming out that have legitimately made some claims. Um, with a a sense of credibility that I believe absolutely need to be checked out. I mean, if I think if it was the Democrats, they would want the same thing. As a matter of fact, in 2000, when the the very highly publicized election process between George Bush and Al Gore, it took 36, 37 days, I believe. It wasn't until December the 12th that everything was finalized, and they absolutely wanted to to take that to the court to, to find out if, in fact, um, the election uh, was going to go to Al Gore. We know the results of that. It was decided that uh, George Bush was the, uh, was the winner of that election, and the rest is history, as they say. So we see the situation taking place right now, and there's a lot that could be debated regarding this. Uh, my personal belief is that I do believe that this needs to be investigated. These are some serious charges. We want to make sure that our election process stays intact. It's, um, as, a, as a republic that it has a, a system of democracy, uh, we're a democratic process. Um, it is important that we, in, that we protect, as much as possible, the integrity of the election process. And, and there is a long history of mail-in ballots um, causing issues. We've, we're seeing this now. Ballots that have showed, shown up well after um, the election with no postmarks. Um, we saw that in Pennsylvania. I mean, there's just a lot of things that need to be looked into. And I think we need to make sure and, and make sure we get the process, make sure we get the outcome correct. And I would say that if it was the Democrats asking the same thing, if it was the Republicans, independents, whomever, um, but we've got to protect um, what we hold dear as a country, a free country to have free elections, but also have fair elections. And by that, making sure that every legal vote counts. I've been hearing this mantra about make every vote count. Well, that that doesn't make sense because you don't want every vote to count. They're finding people who um, apparently have voted from the dead, right? These uh, One guy in particular, I saw this just recently, um, that was reported uh, by a, a newspaper and wasn't a conservative one. So for those who are thinking I'm cherry-picking here, um, this was actually uh, a newspaper that um, probably isn't the friendliest to conservatives, but pointed out the fact that there was a ballot uh, of a gentleman who had had died back in 1984, but apparently he cast a uh, a vote in this election. I guess he thought this was so important that he had to uh, cast his vote from the dead. So we're seeing some of these that are taking place, and 
and we've got to protect the integrity of the election process. And with that comes a lot of commentary. I saw something just today from uh, Russell Moore, um, who is from the um, uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, and he made the statement uh, that there has not been any evidence that voter fraud has been occurring, um, and that only in one state, Nevada, that they've officially claimed fraud was occurring, and that there's not been any proof that's been offered at all by the Trump administration. Well, part of the reason that proof has not been offered is because, number one, the media would skew it anyway. They've distorted all of this. It's it's no... Regardless of where you stand politically, you, you can't look at things from a very objective, or at least as much as you could be objectively, uh, look at this situation and say the media has been friendly to, to the Trump administration, specifically to Trump. But the other thing is when you're litigating something and taking it to court, you don't give all your evidence out in the public. That, that, that is reserved for not the court of public opinion, but the actual court, our, our, our judicial system. And so, so to make to make that claim, I think um, is uh, very much premature. I, d- I don't think it is um, wise or prudent um, for uh, Russell Moore to be saying that. I like Russell Moore. I think he's a great guy. Um, I like a lot of things that he said. Just on this particular issue, I don't think that what he's saying is completely accurate. So there are a lot of people out there um, who are giving commentary to this. And I know that me doing this podcast, there's some sense of commentary, but I really want to focus more on really what the topic is today, and that is the sovereignty of God and toxic theology, um, which plays into the season that we're in right now, because there are a lot of people who are making statements, and and by a lot of people, I mean people from, from different uh, ends of the spectrum, so to speak, liberal, conservative, left-wing, right-wing, whatever, but also within the church and those who are pastors, those who are called to shepherd um, the people of God. And we know that Jesus is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, as Scripture tells us. Um, but for pastors and spiritual leaders um, who are called to shepherd the flock, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, it is really important that we shepherd our people well. Now, that doesn't mean that we tell them that they should vote for a particular party, but what it does mean is that we need to be really, really clear. What does Scripture say? What are the biblical values that we are to uphold? Um, and and in doing so, let people see Scripture over and against political platforms, policies, um, you know, these things that are very, very important. And so I think it's necessary for shepherds, for pastors, for us to lead people well um, according to what Scripture teaches and to make sure that we don't um, say things that really have been influenced by culture. Um, and I'll give you an example of this. Uh, someone shared with me just the other day a post by a pastor whose name I'm not going to mention here um, that I believe is a small picture of what what toxic theology and unbiblical counsel looks like. And, and you know, again, it seems to be pervasive in the American church where identity politics, misdirected kindness, and, and compassion that's cloaked, you know, these cloaked, compassion-cloaked half-truths half have formed a different gospel that's really not the true gospel that we see elevated by the whole counsel of God's Word. And so I want to share with you what this quote was. It was posted on a social media platform, and, and I'm sure that this guy's a great guy. I'm sure that he is loving his people well, um, but even people who are good people, right, can have poor theology, and and so let me just I want to just want to 
kind of tell you what this text is or this the statement was, and then I want to kind of break it down a little bit and see what is the scripture speak into this. Here was the quote: "As a pastor, I want to encourage folks to avoid toxic theology today and every day." And then he quotes this statement that that a lot of people apparently tend to say. Quote, no matter what happens, Jesus is king, end quote, he goes on to say, is a form of faith that invalidates the lived experiences of faithful people all over the country who have been harmed by this administration, end quote. So it, in that, in that uh, post uh, and his quote, you kind of see where he falls, at least it seems to be, um, on the political spectrum. But we have a pastor who's making a statement that really speaks to the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Jesus. Um, and if you claim that God is sovereign, even in the midst of this uh, political quagmire that we're in, this, this chaos, it seems, that if you were to say the statement, no matter what, no matter what happens, Jesus is king, his claim is that, that that's a form of faith that invalidates the lived experiences of faithful people all over the country who've been harmed by this administration. And to that, I say... What? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I mean, there's a lot in this quote that I, I see as problematic, not from the perspective of my own personal opinion, but but really from a biblical perspective. As I said, I'm sure this guy's a great guy. I'm sure he loves his people, the people he's pastoring. Um, but in this situation, if, if we if I were to invite him to sit down over a cup of coffee, uh, I would ask him something like this: that you know, make this statement. That's an entering, interesting statement you've made. But where can I find that validated in the Scriptures? Where does Scripture kind of undergird or, or kind of um, affirm what, what you've just stated? So I want to, again, break this down a little bit um, and see what Scripture has to say about really the sovereignty of God in all of this. And there's a lot of things we could talk about regarding the sovereignty of God. So I realize that, and this is not going to cover it all by any means. But I want to speak to that based upon the statement that was made by this pastor. Now, to, to his statement, encouraging people to, quote, avoid toxic theology, end quote, I say to that, amen. I, I completely agree with that. We should avoid toxic theology. The theology that we should be speaking should be biblical, Christocentric theology, that we need to uphold the Word of God as um, the infallible, authoritative Word of God, um, that is inspired by God, that was inspired by, by, by uh, God himself through the Spirit of God to men who wrote this down, and this book is still relevant. It's timeless. There's nothing in this that we should take out and say, this is not for us today. Um, I believe Scripture, um, it, it, it stands the test of time. And so that to that, I would say avoiding toxic theology, absolutely, completely agree with him on that first statement. But he goes on to say the rest of it, which I just quoted to you a few moments ago. Now, there's a lot of toxic theology that's been poured into what I would say the streams and the wells to which spiritual leaders are leading their flock. And just, just so that I'm clear, as we talked about, just as I talked about just a second ago, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd to whom we look and follow. But but as Peter strongly encouraged the spiritual leaders within the church. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, "...shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock." 
So before leading those whom God's entrusted to your care to different patch, pastures in which to rest, which we see that in Psalm 23, that the Lord is our shepherd, uh, we have need of nothing, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he restores our soul. We see this, this, this imagery, we see it um, spoken of by David in the Psalms, um, and as pastors, as shepherds, as under-shepherds, um, we, we're to lead the people whom God's entrusted to us um, to pastures where they can rest and where they can drink deeply from. Uh, and so we have to be really careful that we're leading them to the right pastures and the right streams, not these spiritually modified pastures that look and feel good, yet are filled with deadly toxins that, that kill the soul rather than nourish it. And the only way you can lead people um, to those places, to those pastures, is if you're allowing God to lead you uh, as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, or even even for someone who is um, a person who's not quote unquote in vocational ministry, um, as a follower of Jesus, you're you're leading people. You're you're leading your wife. You're leading your children. Um, you're leading you're you're leading people who um, maybe you're mentoring or you're discipling. I mean, people are watching you. Um, you have influence in the lives of people. And so it's, it's important that we're careful about where we're leading people. That's what Paul said, that, that follow me as I follow Christ, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And, and listen, we all make mistakes. I, I have had plenty in my life, many things that, that have, that I've, where I've done things that have not been right in the eyes of God, that I've had to, had to confess and repent of. Um, but, but what we do say is, as I'm following Jesus, follow me. Um, and as leaders, spiritual leaders, it's incredibly important that as people are following you, that you're following Jesus so that you lead them to the, the pastures that they can feast on, um, pastures that really are um, nourishing to their soul. So this next statement that the past, this pastor made was to, was to clarify what he believes to be toxic theology. And so I'm going to quote him again. This is what he would, would say is toxic theology. Um, that Jesus is king is a form of faith that invalidates the lived experiences of faithful people all over the country who've been harmed by this administration. Now, I, I'm pretty pretty sure he wasn't referring to Kanye West's album of the same name, right? So we know that. But in all seriousness, what's implied in those words, Jesus is king, is the sovereignty of God. So in my view, a, a question that arises that we that we need the scriptures, all of scripture to address— Questions like, is God really sovereign, or is Jesus really king over all? Which is another way of asking, is Jesus sovereign? Now, th that's a crucial question to answer, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Because if, if, if I believe that God is, in fact, sovereign, which means he has the power and the right and does rule and reign over all, that he's in control, if I believe that God is, in fact, sovereign and Jesus is king, then based on this pastor's statement, it invalidates the lived experiences of people suffering. In other words, God can't be sovereign. Jesus can't be king if people suffer and are harmed, quote, by this administration, end quote. Now, now just as a side note, I remember, since we're going to keep this fair here, I remember hearing the same and seemingly genuine express statement, Jesus is king, by a people living under a different administration that did much harm to preborn children, religious liberty, even race relations. And based on research that was done by, by uh, the nonpartisan Incredible Pew Research Center, which I'll be glad to, 
um, to link to that research in my blog post at seanbernard.wordpress.com. Um, but even the research showed that. So, so I've heard this in, on both sides, so to speak, over the years. So, so again, the question is, is God sovereign? So rather than answer that question based on what we've experienced or are experiencing or what we feel, it would be best to let God speak for himself through his word. That just makes sense. So allowing our experiences to determine what we believe, it, that is, it's, it's, it's like a foundational chemical in the toxic theology of meology. And that meology really has become the, almost the, the elevated theology in, in uh, Christendom, if you will, Christianity right now in the church, and it's dangerous. It's, it's very dangerous. So what does God's Word say about His sovereignty? And if He is sovereign, does, he, does His sovereignty remain true uh, even in our suffering? Well, there's different aspects of this I, w- I want to kind of look at, and I'm going to read a lot of Scripture because everything I say regarding the sovereignty of God in addressing this quote, um, I want to come straight from Scripture, so it's not my opinion. Um, so we know that God is sovereign in creation. Genesis chapter 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No one else created the heavens and the earth. God did. I mean, he's the only one who's done this. Um, there's no one above him. There's no one like him. It's hard to argue with any credibility that God's not sovereign over all things when he, in his eternality, is before all things and created all things. The apostle Paul said to um, the, the Christians in, in Colossae, in the letter that he wrote to them in Colossians, um, which is just as pertinent for us and relevant um, to us today, he said this, He, speaking of Christ Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent, that he might be first place. And that means first place above all others, all else. That's Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. The writer says this, but in the last days, these last days, he has spoken to us, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Anyone who could uphold the universe by the word of their power is sovereign. And there's only one who does that, and that is God himself. That is Christ, who is God in the flesh, right? So so we see the, the sovereignty of God in creation. So with just these few verses, it seems very clear, crystal clear, that God is sovereign over all creation. So I'm confident that no one um, could, um, could, could exceed or excel above God, the one who upholds the universe he created by the word of his power. No one is going to, and I'm sorry for this, no one could trump him in this, right? No pun intended there, but no one has the trump card with this um, when it comes to his sovereignty in creation. So we see in creation, he's sovereign. Well, what about in captivity? We think about lived experiences and circumstances. Think about all that Israel had gone through, the history of Israel, um, not just what we see in biblical times, but all through history. Uh, on the surface, 
it would it would seem to not make sense that God would allow the people of Israel to be held captive by her enemies over the course of history and for the people of Israel to experience suffering at the hands of the governing administrations who ruled over them. You talk about administrations that were not friendly to the Jewish people. Those who held them captive absolutely were. They oppressed the Jewish people. They, they persecuted them. They, they killed them even. So I just want to run down a few of these. So they were held captive in Egypt. We know that. Um, oppressed by those to whom they were enslaved. The Egyptians, they were under Pharaoh's rule. And we know that God heard their groaning and their crying. And then he raised up Moses as a deliverer who really is a type of Christ. He's not Christ, but he points to and is foreshadowing Christ who would ultimately deliver us and rescue us from bondage and slavery to sin. Um, and, and so we see that that the children of Israel were held captive in Egypt under an oppressive administration. I'm sure their lived experiences were not good, and they very much were harmed by that administration. Yet even in this, we see the sovereignty of God. We see that when Joseph made the statement to his brothers about his own um, suffering that he went through at the hand of his brothers and 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 Potiphar, and I mean we could we could we could go down the we could go down the list, right? But Joseph was was spared so that he could be the instrument of God to really rescue the people of Israel and provide for them. So they were held captive in Egypt. Well, then you have the northern kingdom of Israel, which uh, at the time that the, the that Israel had split into two kingdoms, there was the northern kingdom that was uh, had as the capital, uh, it was Samaria, um, was the capital of the northern kingdom. And then there was the southern kingdom, Judah, um, whose capital was Jerusalem. So the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, was invaded and occupied by the Assyrians under the reign and the rule of Shalmaneser V, with tens of thousands exiled to Assyria. So when he came in and, and he uh, literally began to occupy nor- the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., um, we see that there were some that were exiled to Assyria, and then there were some who actually stayed there in, in Samaria, but they were ruled by the tyranny of the Assyrian king. Again, their lived experiences more than likely were not were not pleasant. Then there's the southern kingdom of Israel, which was again Judah, capital was Jerusalem, was invaded by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire. And we know the story of that. Many were killed, the temple was destroyed, the walls of Jerusalem um, were left in ruins. Nehemiah asked later of Artaxerxes, who would be the king of Persia later after the Babylonians, if he could go back and, and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, when Babylon was reigning and ruling, it left Jerusalem in ruins. And there were many that were taken captive and led into exile in Babylon for 70 years. Now again, we talk about a very brutal administration, harm that was done to the Jewish people, suffering. Yet somewhere in the midst of this, God was at work. The Medo-Persian Empire came in after the Babylonians, and they were ruled by King Cyrus and later Artaxerxes, who allowed the Jewish people to return to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem and then the temple. I mean, God used this empire to set his captive people free to fund the rebuilding of the temple and encourage his children that they are never forsaken. So you had this pagan administration that God even used to show favor to Israel so that they could go back and rebuild Jerusalem, and then eventually the temple, and all of that, but but funded all of this. And so we, we, see, we see that God's sovereignty in this. Then you have the Greek Empire, the Hellenists, that were initially led by Alexander the Great, and who controlled the land for almost 300 years. The, the temple that had been built was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes IV, 
um, which led to the revolt uh, by the Maccabees, uh, the Maccabean revolt. Um, so we see that. Then the Roman Empire comes in. They ruled the land and suppressed the Jewish people for over 350 years. And after Titus, who destroyed the temple in AD 70, um, many of the Jewish people scattered into other parts of the world to avoid death and persecution. And that was known, that became known as the diaspora, which means the, the scattering. And so Jewish people scattered all over the known world to avoid this persecution. And then there were many other there were many other empires and kingdoms and administrations who would rule in Israel. The Byzantine era, the Arabs, the Crusades, um, uh, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire. I mean, we could go down the list. And then you have Nazi Germany, who, under the evil rule of Adolf Hitler, sought to exterminate the Jewish people by means of the Holocaust, which led to over 6 million deaths of the Jewish people. And each of these kingdoms, in some capacity, were trying to annihilate, eliminate Israel, but Israel's still here, and you can't look at Israel and not see the sovereign will, the sovereign hand of God in this. You just can't. So in each of these moments of exile, God used the enemies of Israel to carry out his judgment as well as to draw the hearts of Israel back to himself. I mean, it was Israel's disobedience of which God repeatedly warned Israel through his prophecies um, that led them down a very destructive path that, uh, that ultimately led to bondage, to the bondage of their captivity, to, to, because that's, that's what sin does. Sin always does that. It leads us into captivity. It was no different for Israel. It's no different for us as well. Yet somehow, with all of these kingdoms and the empires and the nations that have ruled, and in many cases sought to eliminate the people of Israel, God has not only sustained his people, but has used and is using and will continue to use all of this to accomplish his purposes in the lives of the Jewish people. Because the scripture teaches in the end, all true Israel will be saved. And he's doing the same thing in the lives of all who profess to be followers of Jesus. So for, for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to highlight a few more ways in which we see the sovereignty of God in scripture, but there is so much more. I mean, the, but, but for now, we're going to let this suffice. So we've seen it in creation, the sovereignty of God in creation, even in captivity for Israel, but we also see it in the suffering of Christ. And I'm just going to give you, you know, we, we know that, that it was the Lord's will to crush um, his son, the Messiah, um, Jesus himself said in John 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Even in that one verse, you see the sovereignty of God, even in the suffering of Jesus. You see it again in Isaiah, as I mentioned, um, that it was the Lord's will to crush his son. You see it in the rule and the reign of Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. That's sovereignty. Revelation 1, 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, sovereignty. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Daniel 5, 18, O King, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. You look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. And then Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 says this, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So I heard one guy say, I think it was uh, maybe Pete Briscoe, that said that the one who wins... Any election is the one who God cast his vote 
4. I thought that was a great way of saying it. And really, that speaks to Daniel 4.17. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Psalm 2, verse 2 through 4, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then Psalm 33, verse 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. We read about in Job how God's will, that there's nothing that can thwart God's will, his sovereignty. He's sovereign over Satan. We can read that in Scripture, John 14, where Jesus said this in verse 30 and 31, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So again, Satan is under the rule and authority of God himself. We see that in Job when Satan had to come and ask permission um, to literally bring these trials and difficulties to Job's life, yet he couldn't take his life. So we see it over Satan. We see God's sovereignty in the suffering of believers. Um, and in Acts chapter 4, it says in verse 24 and through verse 31, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. Well, these are ones who had been martyred. But he says, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 3, 17, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I mean, on and on I could go. If you, and I would say, read all of 1 Peter and his encouragement to the followers of Jesus, those believers who were there, who suffered, and many who were torturously killed under the tyrannical reign of the brutal emperor Nero. I mean, he would literally take followers of Jesus, people of the way, and would, would light them on fire as human torches in his garden to light up his garden just for fun. That's the kind of guy Nero was, and you could read about his life and, and how he was brutal towards believers in Christ. And so here Peter is writing in this, this epistle, 1 Peter, writing to the believers saying, listen, our joy is in Jesus, that this, that this world we live in is not all there is. There's something much better coming even though their lived experiences were difficult and the administration under which they were um, being held was, um, was brutal. It was harmful to them. And then you could look at Habakkuk. 
who expressed, if you read that book in the Old Testament, this minor prophet who expressed his lack of understanding of what was going on with the Assyrians and the soon-coming Chaldeans, which were the people of Babylon, the southern part of Babylon, against God's people, you read that book, and there's a sense of honest rawness that comes from Habakkuk in, in his cries, his prayerful cries to God. He asks great questions. His, his frustration and lack of understanding is very real. He's no different from us when we don't understand what's going on and why what is happening is happening. And we could make that, that claim for what's taking place in our culture right now when we see what's happening with the political landscape, when we see what's going on with all the anarchy, the rioting. I mean, all, all of these things we've experienced, we could ask those questions like, God, what is going on? And God answers Habakkuk's prayers by telling him, that he's raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to invade. And to that, Habakkuk replies, in essence, how could you do this? I mean, are you, ki- are you kidding me? I mean, I kind of get the sense that Habakkuk could have said, the administration of the, As- of the Assyrians, they've, they've done great harm. And the Babylonians are going to do even more harm. So, so don't tell me that God is sovereign. Don't tell me that he's king. Because to have that kind of faith and believe that God is sovereign in the midst of all this, it invalidates our lived experiences as Israelites and, and, and the harm that we've experienced already from Assyria and that we're going to experience again through Nebuchadnezzar's administration, and you're telling me that God is sovereign? That's not what our lived experiences tell us. Yet, as God speaks to his prophet, he reminds Habakkuk of this. This is in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So really what that's saying is that that there's sovereignty even in suffering. Now I get it. God's sovereignty is somewhat of a mystery, and and at times it's very hard to accept. But without a doubt, God is broken over the sin that has scathed this world. It's left a wake of heartache and pain and suffering, But our lack of understanding God doesn't make him any less sovereign. So regardless of what we experience, God gives us much grace to still find much joy and hope, even in the difficult moments and days of life, regardless of what administration we're under. He's writing this story, and the twists and the turns are not without the sovereign strokes of his pen. Just not. So here's what I would say. I want to encourage you to avoid the dangerous road of seeking to reconcile your feelings with your faith rather than reconciling your faith with God's character and who he is. We, we live in a, a culture where feelings have become elevated above biblical truth. Feelings are not wrong. God's given us emotions. We have these feelings, and, and those feelings are valid in the sense that they're real to us. But when we make decisions based upon what we feel, we make some very, very um, wrong choices. That's why it's important for us to take our feelings, our emotions, just like David did. David, and when you read the Psalms, the Psalms he wrote, again, very raw, very honest, and he takes his feelings and he lets God and God's truth navigate, help navigate his feelings in in a Godward direction. And that's what needs to happen with us, is letting God take our feelings and our emotions and let him direct them in a Godward way, as opposed to us following after our heart. And, and you know, we, we don't need to let our heart lead us. We need, to, we need to lead our heart by leading it according to the truth of God's word. So 
be careful. You know, statements like what I just read you. And, and I'm sure the intentions of this pastor were good. I, I would hope so. I, I believe so. But to say that Jesus is king invalidates uh, the the lived experiences of people and the harm that's been done by this administration, God's heart breaks, it does. And and God will meet you you at your point of need. But also know this, that God is going to accomplish his purposes and that our feelings, emotions, Our lived experiences all need to be subjected to his sovereignty because he's good. So in this season, the question becomes, are we we still still willing to trust God and that he's sovereign over all things? Because we don't know when this election process is going to be over. I pray it is over soon. And I pray that God would do something miraculous in the healing of our nation. Um, but we need to let the process run its course. That'd be true regardless of what party was contesting the election. But here's what I will say. My, my hope's not in a political party. It isn't. And I thank God for that. And I can with full confidence say that regardless of whatever takes place, that Jesus really is king. Whether it's Trump who is reelected uh, and, the, and the courts ruled that he is, or if the courts rule and say, nope, we don't see any voter fraud that uh, would lend itself to um, turn back the results of what we've seen with this election, um, Biden and Harris um, are president and vice president. Regardless, my hope is in Jesus. He is my king. I trust him. And he has never ceased to be king, nor will he ever cease to be king. And, and if that hurts your feelings, then I would encourage you to surrender your feelings to God and let the truth of his word guide your feelings to the goodness of his sovereignty. So I hope you would join me in, in realizing and recognizing that our, that our only hope and joy is found in Christ and the sovereignty of a king who's always reigned and he always will. And with that, I want to pray, come Lord Jesus pray that he comes soon, but until he does, I will rest in the truth that he is sovereign, that Jesus is king. So until next time, until our next episode, I hope you have a wonderful day. I hope you will continue to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, his goodness, that you would stay true to his word, you would spend time in his word, and let his word direct your heart. Um, And so with that, again, hope you have a great day. I look forward to Um, talking with you again on our next episode of Crossroads and Culture. Have a wonderful day.